When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. We're a news and talk show that's about books and how they're cool and which ones are new and how many of them are worth are interesting. I did a little remix there. You see that? It's been that kind of day, huh? Kind of Yoda doing the, the, the intro there. We're recording on Thursday, February 3rd, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky. We got a two-parter today, a rare BR Pod interview in the back half of the show. Rebecca and I are talking to Gloria Edom. Uh, Somewhat better known, maybe, as uh, the well-read black girl and her well-read black girl community. She's starting a new podcast, um, and that's over on Pushkin. The network over there, which, as you know, some of you may know, is Malcolm Gladwell's joint, and they've got a lot of interesting podcasts. Ashley Ford had one. Not sure if that's still running, if it was limited series or not. Um, but it was a good chance to uh, catch up with Glory. And we've always wanted to talk to her. We've been following her really since 2015 and all the iterations mm-hmm. Um, and what she's been doing. So go check out the interview, stick around to inter- listen to the interview, but also go subscribe to Well Read Black Girl. Yes. Um, her first couple of interviews are with Tarana Burke and Min Jin Lee. I know she's got stuff coming out with Jacqueline Woodson and Anita Hill and a whole bunch of interesting guests on that show. Just she's delightful. She I'll was great. Now. We, yeah. we, we really had a fun time. I felt uh, very like uh, Wayne's World, We're Not Worthy about yeah. that. She was so fun and interesting and super smart, so sharp to talk to. And I'm, I know the podcast is just going to continue to be great. So. Yeah, a fellow tra- I mean, I feel like we've, we've, we've walked parallel internet journeys, fellow mm-hmm. travelers yeah. kind of um, from afar, and we've always admired her. So great to have her on the show. On the first half of the show, we're going to spend the time on Frontless Corner. So it's not really a corner. It's more like the frontless porch, I guess, the entryway, the foyer, um, where we talk about some recent reads, but also finally the much-awaited uh, discussion of Station Eleven. For a few minutes, um, the winter draft preview as of now is no longer available. The votes are in. If you haven't voted by Monday, I'm going to keep the votes open through the weekend, but by the time this goes live on Monday, I'll close the votes. Um, we can talk. We'll talk about the results a little bit later. Thank you all so much for those of you who participated. I think it's fair to say this is our last Gumroad experiment. I believe so, yes. We're going to do something else, um, but I think we've learned what we needed to learn uh, from this. So thank you all so much for checking that out. Um, By the time you're listening to this as well, you can hear Amanda, Rebecca, and I talking about Gone Girl on Adaptation Nation. It was so fun. We had, we got, it's like an hour and 47 minutes is my edit. (laughs) They're looking at the file right now. Um, So too long. We could have gone for another hour. We, we really, we really could have. We got, I I love that. I mean, I really enjoy doing Mm -hmm. the show, but I think this was maybe, we got into like issue kind of stuff, which we haven't too much, you know, it's English patient or, you know, Macbeth or something like that. So I think it was um, the most fun I've had on one of the Adaptation Nation or book nerd movie hours since we did Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. Well, that was a really good one. You can't, no one follows the killer uh, of Leo in 1995. (laughs) That's true. Um, So go check that out. Uh, And there's, we got one more in the run that we're doing. I won't spoil it here. And then I'm not sure what the fate of Adaptation Nation is going to be, as I said on the show before. It's really an experiment. You know, we're trying out some new platforms. We're also having fun with the format we like. 
not sure if it's going to continue as its own feed or have some other fate, but still a few to go over there. All right, before we talk about books and stuff, uh, let's do a quick sponsor break. Um, let's do front list corner first. So I think we are gathered here today, primarily the, our shared front list corner. We want to start with shared. Or you want to start with one for you, one for me. How do you want to? Let's go? start with shared because I think we have two shared right now. We do have two shared right now. That's right. Uh, you lead. Where, where do you want to start? I want to start with How to Be Perfect by Michael Shore. Which um, you picked in the draft, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I first brought to our collective attention in an episode of Deals, 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 I believe. Yes, uh, that's right. I remember being very excited. Very excited. And I think I will say, I now let's start here. Let's continue to play this game (laughs) called Were You Whelmed? Over, (laughs) under, or whelmed? Over. I'm going with a slight over too. Yeah. Talk it's about not, it. Okay. Talk about why it's an over. It's not overwhelmed in the, in the way of like, I need to recommend this book to everyone I know. You don't have but... to lay down, you know, have a glass of water kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't have, I'm not like fanning myself or, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to take like recovery periods between chapters. But the pitch is a book about moral philosophy and the, you know, layered onto that by the writer of The Good Place and Parks and Recreation. And he worked on The Office and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a bunch of other things. Um, so by like a guy who knows comedy. And I had yeah. faith that this would be fun to read because Michael Schur is a great writer and he's fun to watch his work. But it's, it is so good. It is so thorough. He makes um, it look so easy. He does make it look it so easy. It is not. I was telling you, I took two semesters of the philosophy of ethics in college with a great professor that, like, that was a formative educational experience that continues to shape how I think about the world. And he is summing up the, the ideas that it took, like, a whole school year to learn in the course of a nine-hour audiobook. And it's, it is it is just incredibly thorough and fun and succinct. He gives great examples. There's a wonderful sense of humor. And then you tipped me off. I was just about to start reading The Galley. And so you had excellent, your spidey senses must have been tingling. You texted me that it was great on audio. And I'm so glad that you did. So I'll let you talk about that piece. Yeah, I mean, I do most of, if not all of my nonfiction on audio. And so when I was looking for um, my next audio read, I saw that it was out. It was on my list. I have a wish list on Audible, and I was out. okay. Looked at it, and then I saw that it was read by. There's voice work by the cast of The Good Place, or the the major characters, and then some other people involved in it too. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's going to be fun. There's not that much of it actually. It's it's for laughs, and but it's really well produced. Sure is. Sure-footed. I can't, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to <laughs> <Jeff>. say. <laughs> but it's really hard what he's doing. And you can feel him working hard to make it seem easy. You can get a sense of all the reading he's done and the research he did in the course of The Good Place and the really trying to apply moral philosophy to individual moments in his life, making it applicable, making it connect to real things, but also the pieces mm-hmm. connect to each other, taking on very difficult text. Some of the stuff I encountered in a primary text way, and yeah. as Shure says, makes you want to throw something heavy <laughs> off something tall when it's you're trying true. to read 75 pages of Wigginstein or something like that. Um, but I think his, I, I think you also see this in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, and Parks and Rec, which have more of his fingerprints than any other work, is it's it makes it so hard to do and yet it feels light without being frivolous and yeah. i don't know how you do this i i, I really i think it I, might be sure's magic trick yes. um to do that 
I think so. It's it looks so easy that you know it has to be really it has to be hard. impossible. And yeah. I I think he's grounded these like big concepts in just really human examples and as you were saying personal stuff from his own life and he brings this like high-minded philosophy into real practical ways that real people like us could apply mm. it to decision making in our own lives by rather than, okay, you're a Kantian person and here's how you do your things. It's like, here's the situation you're in and here are the bits and pieces we can pull from each of these philosophies that can help us make a decision. So having some familiarity with all of them, like have it's kind of like having a good liberal arts education or like yeah. I have a Jesuit background of like having a, knowing a little bit about the foundations of each of these things enables you to be like, okay, well, this is what this would say, and that doesn't work here. So here's this, and here's this other piece, and how this is how I have made this decision that I can feel good about. Uh, the only thing that I'm sad about is that this is a book about moral philosophy, and not nearly enough people are going to buy it or listen I to it. I was thinking about that, too, because I was like, you know, if this is Bill Bryson doing uh, The Body, or, the, or you know, like, even, it's Bill Bryson of the it, mind. It's yeah, like, that's what it is. I think, if I, you know what, they should make the deal where the book is something like, how to how to be perfect is a fun like punny title and he's yeah. he knows that he's winking at it but i do think that the the title should have been different i think the original title was how to be good you could get somewhere on like the guide to being human and if you put bill bryson's name on this cover Mm-hmm. more people would buy it just because of Bill Bryson. But I, this deserves to be read as widely as Bill Bryson. And I think it's the kind of stuff that most people care about. Most people I care about how do I make a good decision or like I want to give money to charity, but I don't want to be seen as wanting credit for it. But also like maybe there's some good. Right. Also, time? I kind no. of do want credit and maybe <laughs> there's some good to my, to my name being attached to it rather than there being something anonymous. Maybe that would like bring attention to it from other people. How, how do I thread this needle? Also, am I a bad person for kind of wanting credit for a thing? And he he's just like, well, here is what you can take from all of these different philosophies to arrive at a good solution that you can feel good about. Um, most people care about this stuff. And I think most people lack a structured way to think about it outside of like, especially now that many fewer of us are affiliated with a religious practice like if you're not affiliated with a religious tradition or like or or some other sort of spiritual practice that has a moral framework around it how do i figure out how to be a good person is difficult or like what are the principles and how can i have some sort of framework rather than just making each decision as it comes and he does such a nice job here like if we could download this into everybody's brains. If we could all be working from this shared knowledge, I think we could get some things done in the world. Yeah, well, I've said before that I want, you know, lab girl for X for like yes. every profession. I'll take how to be perfect for any sort of school of thought or any kind of liberal intellectual tradition. I, yeah. You know, it would be at aesthetics. I, I don't need bioethics. Like, I don't even know where to go. Um, I My one ding on it would be it's almost a Jed Bartleyan ding, mm-hmm. which is you're not just folks. Like there's a little, sometimes there's a little too much of dissembling and trying not to, maybe just turning the cheek ever so slightly yeah. from how yeah. smart sure is, how difficult the subject is to, I would say this, he often uses just the word stuff to describe like a whole area and it makes it more approachable. You want to have a beer with Michael Schur. I'm I'm ready to have a something stiffer, just like a one mm. or two steps stiffer I could deal with. Now, 
that could just be me. I'm sure that for the the general reader, I mean, who's reading this is an interesting question yeah, at all. I, um, but I wouldn't mind just a little more like Zadie Smithian exactitude. Yes. You know, um, and I a little think, more, and a little less like friendly, harmless guy. That's talk. a, I think that's a great point. I hadn't, it hadn't solidified quite that way to me, but it's been making me think a lot about it, like for a book that says how to, it's not really no. how to. It's providing a, a a structural framework and a way to mm-hmm. think about things, but it could use some actual like formulas. I think like if I was <laughs> thinking about um, set boundaries, find peace by Nedra Tawab, which I read last year and found to be incredibly useful, and I've recommended it widely. And she has a bunch of sort of like, here's how to think about boundaries in a bunch of different kinds of relationships and situations. But then she actually has like basically boundary mad libs of Mm. like, so here's the issue. Somebody wants to borrow your car and you don't want to let them. Like, how do you phrase that? And there's a couple fill in the blank options. And I think an element like that also would be incredibly useful for the Mike Shriver. Like, let's actually get into this. Like, what do you mean Mm -hmm. by stuff? How do I do this in my own life? Yeah. So that's a very small half star off for, um, but I think in terms of what he's trying to do, he probably erred in the right way, if that makes sense, yes, right? which is yeah. towards colloquialism and affability. Not to say I I would listen to one of these a month if I <laughs> yeah. could, oh, something yeah. like this. Yes. I definitely would consume as many of these as we're given access to. And our other shared one is the admissions. Is that right? Yes, what we're talking that's right. about? Mm-hmm. I didn't confess to you something about <gasps> this, which is I, I, I DNF'd it. I liked oh. it and DNF'd it. Would you like to hear why? I definitely would like to hear that story. I didn't want to spend time there. I think she's oh. a great writer. I hate private schools. And I realized this halfway through. I was like, I don't like being here. I don't mm. want to know. It's everything I thought and more. And I am out. I thought it was interesting. If you're interested in the... So now you take it from... I, I think it was... It's not because it wasn't good. That's it's just so like, interesting. Yeah, I just, just don't want to be there. It's weird. I want to just like give you a cookie for personal reading self-awareness because you're not yeah. a big DNFer. So I think that's, that's right. Great. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. This is growth, Jeff. Michael Shore yeah. would be proud. Um, so this is Admissions by Kendra James. It's a memoir about being one of the only black students at an elite East Coast boarding school. She was there in the early 2000s. And then when she graduated, uh, went to college and ultimately then went back to the school and worked Um, Mm -hmm. as an admissions officer and then worked with some organizations that did admissions recruiting marginalized students into these largely white, largely very privileged and affluent, um, largely East Coast institutions. And she's, I think the book starts from a place of reckoning with herself of like, this Mm -hmm. place harmed me. And why did I spend years of my life trying to recruit other black people into that experience? Um, And it, yeah, it's not a fun place to be. She has a, it's not all bad. Um, You know, she has some interesting and some good moments, but also really hangs a lantern on the difficult parts Mm -hmm. of that experience. And the, like, I think it's a wonderful and powerful illustration of what we're actually talking about when we talk about like institutionalized racism, that nobody in the admissions office at the school where she taught or the, the school where she attended was like, was saying we shouldn't be letting black kids in or was trying to make different rules Mm -hmm. for students of color, but they were actively disadvantaged. They were treated differently. Teachers allowed other students to make jokes that were racist, um, all kinds of, you know, microaggressive stuff. None of it terribly surprising, but I think that makes it more painful and how predictable and banal. I think that's where I, that's why I ultimately pulled the plug. I was like, Oh, it's almost, I mean, the specifics, 
of course I couldn't have guessed the specific, but like the general vibe and like mm-hmm. the general structure, I was like almost kind of exactly what I expect it to be like. And okay. I'm yeah. out. I, I'm good. I, I really good. enjoyed her yeah. voice. She has a I great sense of humor about herself. Um, yeah. But I get, I get that. It, I, and I'm proud of you for DNFing a book where you didn't want to spend time in the world. Yeah. I'm trying not to feel guilty about and it. And I think it's a great case of not finishing a book. Doesn't mean you don't think it's good or you don't like it. It's just like, I think I kind of got the vibe and I wasn't so compelled to find out more. And, you know, I think not so as a lead to me picking up something else that I wouldn't have picked up because I wouldn't have had time for it, which mm-hmm. I'll talk about probably next week when we're more into it. I just Rebe- recommended to Rebecca today on audio. Um, so we'll talk about it a little more, but I think I'm finding a little bit like, okay, opportunity cost. Yeah. I got enough of that to know what I wanted to know and it's great. Um, and if you're into institutional rubbernecking and are okay you know, it, it's something you want to know more about. Um, I felt a little bad, like wanting to know more about, but I don't, I'm not that invested in the ongoing well-being of elite private high schools. Like they could all go to hell as far. Yeah, as I don't know so. that it's institutional rubbernecking so much as it's important that there's space for those stories to be told and yeah. that people tell them. Like she's doing a real service, mm-hmm. I think. Um, she's doing something very important by sharing her experience and that it's out from a major publisher yes. with a big marketing push behind yeah. it is also great. Yep. Um, all right. One for you, one for me. Sure. Did you have something else? Yeah, I finished Small World by Jonathan Evison. Ah, I was wondering about that. Tell me. It is wonderful. Yeah, I finished I it, I think, right after the last time we did Frontlist mm. Corner, so it's been a couple of weeks. Um, but it's just big and sprawling. It felt to me like it rang the same bells that the Maggie Shipstead novel did at the beginning of last year, like a big multi-generational story. But mm. Evison is looking at and really interrogating the American dream and how much of it is a lie or at least a half-truth or a mistruth in some way. And so it moves between the 1850s and several different characters of different races in the 1850s and then present day descendants of those people. But you don't know at the get go how all of these people are connected and who they are descendants of um, to look at how those people first found themselves in America in the 1850s based on what promise, what were the the dreams that these characters have. And then 150 years later, what, Mm experiences have their what have the generations in between had what have been the good things what have been the bad things it's really it's really beautifully written and like just very carefully put together there were just a ton of details where i imagined that he must have had like a beautiful mind situation happening (laughs) on his office wall to keep track of like people and timelines and connections for everything like he's not trying to be tricky he's not trying to confuse you about who anybody is there's none of that it just weaves together in a really um well crafted thoughtful way and it's 300 pages shorter than the Maggie Shipstead novel was last year so I think Mm. it has some some more hope of getting read you know it maybe it's not fair to equate them but it it feels like it does some of those same things um if you're that kind of reader I think you'll really like it um I've really liked him for most of his career this felt like a bigger attempt at something I was going to say, is his middle name Midlist? Because I couldn't think of a more Midlist author in a good way it's than true. Jonathan yeah. Evison yeah. pumping out really these solid, really good, enjoyable, skillful, artful novels that only people like us, us and Greg Zimmerman, right? This is a Greg Zimmerman book, <laughs> right. if there ever was a Greg, yes, Greg Zimmerman book. True. Mutual friend of ours. And I also need someday to get Jonathan Tropper, Jonathan Evison, 
and uh, Jess uh, Walter in a room. And <laughs> are we sure they're not all the same person? And just change their names to something I can keep apart because they're all in the same zone for me. Jess Walter and Jonathan Evison, especially like beautiful yeah, ruins. Yeah. Was that Jonathan Evison? Jess, Walter, which a book I really like, but I that too many J's of forty-five-year-old white guys. And listen, I'm not only the president; I'm also a member. Of <laughs> it's the like 45 the Chris's in movies. Yeah, it's very tough. It's good. It's a good group, but we need a little differentiation here. Um, I, I, that might make it onto my list. Yeah, uh, what's yours? my mine is a little book called To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara. Ever oh. heard of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. You told me early on that you were maybe loving it. So where are you on the It is either a masterpiece <laughs> or quite bad. And how will you know? Luckily, I am not the judge of the court of art that I don't have to make a proclamation here. So let me take the pro and con. Well, here's, okay. the, here's, the, here's the, the setup. It's, in, it's a big book. I think it's 800 pages, maybe 750. I did it on, on digital, so I wouldn't have to yeah, like, look at it the whole time. It's in the neighborhood of 800, yeah. You know what I did? This is very unusual for me. I bought a hardcover, and then I was like reading, and I'm 100 pages. And I'm like, I, this is too much, like both physically, mentally. And so I, <laughs> I, I bought a digital version so I could okay. read on my iPad. Then I just didn't have to deal with how much was left. So it's it's in three sections. And each section, the first section is like 1880s uh, North America, and the middle section is 1990s, and the last section is 2094. So it's way in the future, Mm -hmm. because that's how time works. Um, But it's an alternate history where the Civil War and Revolutionary War happened a little bit differently, and the outcomes were a little bit different, so that um, the United States that we know is broken up into chunks, Right sort of a southern piece, a northeastern piece, a middle piece, and then it's kind of a San Francisco area. And they have different rules. And the, the one that's the most important is in the northeast, as early as like whenever this is happening, 1883, 1884, I think, that homosexuality, being gay, is not just non-prosecuted, but it's also legal and normalized in the northeast, right? So that we're having relationships between men and women, men and men, and women and women, and that's the permutation that Hanya Yanagihara seems to be interested in here is especially between gay men. But then in each novella, the name, she reuses the names, but they're mm. not the same characters. And I don't, I'm pretty sure not even descendants of. So there's a David and a Charles and an Edward and then other characters around, but those are the three mid ones. Okay. And they have similar kind of positions. You know, one's more of a, a steady, boring, but, um, institutional kind of person, a non-sexy but reliable, a, a Bill a Bill Pullman in Got Sleepless it. in Seattle kind of character, <laughs> if you will. Okay. All right. And then in most of them, David is the main character who is in some kind of relationship, maybe or maybe not with a Charles, but then tempted by the Edward, who is this attractive, maybe dangerous, maybe unreliable, maybe fine, but also frowned upon for some reason by the other people. And she takes that dynamic and puts it in these three different places over time huh. and kind of messes with it, okay. right? And what is, you know, the David is pulled between the familiar and the safe and the um, escape. So each one of them kind of ends with a character, kind of a spoiler, like heading out to what they see as paradise at the mm-hmm. end of each novella. This David character or a character as a proxy for David, it gets pretty confusing. I can't even spoil if I wanted to because I don't really understand all the pieces. Um <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, have, I have some questions about that, but carry on. Yeah, yeah, and so, and so it's kind of like it's kind of almost like um, movements or like the Goldberry Goldberg variations of Bach of like trying okay. to work out a similar dynamic in three different places. 
it's also quite long um and there's like long side stories that maybe if i were studying it would have like cloud atlas like layer cake rube goldberg Mm. narrative import i didn't get it on first pass um on the other hand i keep thinking about it and i found it really interesting and the worlds created in each novella are the future world is interesting the middle world is super interesting the scales are quite different uh, I don't. I don't. On the other hand, it also does it. Is it sound and fury signifying nothing? I'm not really sure because I can't even really get my hands around yeah. it. I guess I'll say this: I'm glad I read it. Okay. And I will read almost anything Yanagihara writes subsequent, just because mm-hmm. I don't know what you would do next. I don't know if I'll go back and read Little Life because I don't need to cry that much, and that's all I've been told about. I don't it think so you far. need to have that experience. But I, yeah, I, I, I can see. You know, there's been some like. Hanya Yanagahara, I think I told you, my new take is she's the new Franzen in terms mm. of disc, she's discourse, discourse sticks to her. Yeah. And this is about why is she writing about gay men all the time? And it's not easy for gay men, but also there's happiness here. I, I didn't really see that, you know, putting gay men through the meat grinder and like having it be a pathos machine. I didn't really mm. see that as happening. In the third in the third book, there one of the main, I think the main point of view character has undergone treatment, and there's a pandemic, I should say. The third one is like this. We're in the oh, world where there's just wolf. like giant waves of enormous pandemics, right? Fun. Um, also, I'm 800 pa- 500 pages in. I ain't giving up now. Uh, <laughs> and what the main character, as part of the treatment to save her life, has neurological stuff happen, right? Mm. And I've seen some critique that this is an autistic character, neurodivergent, and she has problems, and you know why do this? And the reputation is not good. I, I'm less, mm. I'm less skilled to know whether or not to critique or not. I really didn't. I, I, I recognize it as a neurodivergent character. I thought I was actually trying to do something pretty interesting by showing their point of view and what how they do think and feel. Um, that it is different, but also it's important and worth thinking about and has stakes, not just an automaton or something else mm. like that. So. Maybe I should read more, but I'm going to hold space for those as maybe that's not great. I'm neither um, a gay man nor am I um, neurodivergent or have someone close to my life that's neurodivergent. So I'm not as fluent in the pitfalls and tropes and stereotypes um, that can happen there. But even with my first pass of knowing that's something to look out for, I, I didn't really find that to be true. I did find this idea of being people being torn between choosing something safe and authorized and I don't know I, I guess just sort of going risking it all by go striking out for the territories as Huck said that's a lot of that mm-hmm. whether that's Hawaii I mean there's a lot of Hawaii and the North America crisscross as as locuses of value and of safety and desirability but why people do that what is lost when you're forced to make that choice or when you when do you actually make that choice proactively yeah um I thought that was pretty cool. So I don't know. Does, is that my front list corner for it? I, I, I hate is, to not be as, not to be as forthright well, um, either way, but I'm not sure what else to do with it. The like sort of shruggy man of this is either a masterpiece or quite bad seems to be a theme running through a lot of the criti- the discourse uh, about yeah. it. Like you're not the first person that I've encountered who had that impression is there a type of reader you would recommend this to? Or do you think this is really a, like every reader for themselves? You got to know if this is well, where you want to jump in. Um, even, on a sentence level, it's not super difficult. 
but it's literary fiction of the highest order in terms of like it's not clear what it's about mm-hmm. right you know like each novella has their own little plot but by putting them all next together and using the same names in similar situations it's about an idea that maybe Yanagahara herself is having a hard time grappling with and she's trying to look at it from different angles refract it through different prisms um, and see what comes out. So I think it's a novel of ideas. It's a novel of experiences. It's a speculative fiction novel. You got to be okay with not being okay with not getting it, I guess. Like, you know, if, mm-hmm. if that's something you're interested in, I think there might be a lot there for you if you're into interesting messes or sorting out whether or not it's an interesting mess. You and I happen to like interesting yep. messes a lot of the time. I wouldn't mind if they were shorter, um, <laughs> you know, as an interesting think... messes go, but I do, I did like it. I, I did. It's... I'm really, I'm so glad I read it. I'll say that. I'm okay. really glad I read it. It's really helpful to hear you say that because at least one person that I had talked to directly said that they DNF'd it because they didn't get it. And and to put it in the realm of books that like maybe you're not going to get, maybe maybe there's not something to get. I don't think gettability is maybe what's at stake necessarily. Yeah, that there might be something valuable in the experience like that you're Mm -hmm. still thinking about it. Yeah. is really interesting. I think I might get there. This one crossed over from like, I should have read it three months ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now you're playing catch up. And now it's in the place where there's all the discourse, which means that I, like my personal book wiring, I'm not going to get to it until the discourse I has know. passed. <laughs> I'd say this for you, Rebecca. If it was 380, I'd say, you know what? I think you should read it. Mm. But you could get two 380s for this. I mean, not to be ham-fisted, but I do think in those terms, right? It's Mm -hmm. like when I'm valuing an audiobook, if it's 17 hours long, I'm going to choose the one that's nine and a half hours long because I get two for the price of one. Time is my my currency, right? I've got enough money to buy the number of hours of reading that I have, either library or galleys or whatever. I'm not worried about the price. I'm I'm in a very fortunate position to be in, and I appreciate it every single day. But I, the, the currency I'm spending is hours. Oh, yes. Well, the spirit and, of Oliver Berkman is with us today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. The currency I'm spending is hours. And I'd say I'm glad I spent the hours. With okay. The, it, as um, Prue says in uh, British Baking Show, it's worth the calories. Mm-hmm. This is worth the hours. Okay. I wouldn't have mind spending 600 pages <laughs> rather than 750, but I would have... I would have re I would go back and spend the 750 pages to, to read that's it That's really helpful. Yeah. Also, I like knowing what the discourse is. See, that's another thing. Yeah, I want to know what the sticky. friends in joint is about. When, right. I think with Yanagihara, I, I don't know that a little life would hold up for me who I am today, but I did really, I was really pulled into it when it, when yeah. I first read it. And then I went back and read the people in the trees and there is something about the way that she writes that has its own like special kind of gravity. Like you just yeah. get pulled in to there's some quality about it that's like this it factor kind of like what we were talking about with sure being able to make hard things look easy that mm. that's compelling that's a compelling experience to have in itself as a reader of like there is just something about the way that this person puts words together that here i go and it uh, you know it was worth the hours for the 750 pages is really interesting so i will i will hold that away and to expand on my Yana Gaharan is the new friends, and I, I don't think I've articulated on the show, but it's interesting to think about as, you know, someone who's widely agreed upon to be a contemporary, maybe master of literary fiction. I think that maybeness is important for both of them, mm-hmm. right? Not Morrison is not, uh, or um, Franzen was not Morrison, and uh, Yana Gahara is not Whitehead. Just to put yeah. it in some, you know, I, I don't think she's thought of it in the same way. I certainly don't think of that same way. And the content and form of the books are quite long, 
And I don't think they're exactly in line with like this mainstream lefty literary fiction reader. <laughs> yes. No, I'm serious. Yeah, no, 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 I, I agree. Yeah. I think that's part of what pisses people off about both of them is that they're right. not trying to cater to that particular kind of reader. They don't really right. care about making the right. lefty mainstream lit fic reader happy. And the third piece of that is if someone says that to them in an interview, otherwise they say, eh, I do what I want. Yeah. Which also the sort of mm-hmm. <laughs> reflect like that also then like perturbs the, the center line. How dare. <laughs> and I think those things together make, now I don't know that they're interested in similar things. Um, you know, Franz is much more interested in, I mean, upper middle class whiteness, for lack of mm-hmm. a better term, in all of its, there are still many forms of it. There's a lot of different colors of white, as I found at, this, at the hardware store when we're trying to paint our walls. Um, and he's, you know, interested in what that means. Yanagahara is interested in something else. It's, to this point, largely using, centered on, interested in the relationship between primarily gay men. But this one has a telescopic, historical, geopolitical, racial element with Hawaii um, and how that does and doesn't work in how mainstream, ham-fisted ways of thinking about race and difference in America currently are. And I don't think it's... It's not it's not safe even within what we kind of find to be safe in literary fiction. And so I think that's important. I, I think it's important to have space and be willing to go out and try that. Also feel feel to disagree with a critique it. Um, but it got me out of my reading comfort zone in a good way. And I did want to spend time with it. It wasn't it wasn't like admissions where I was like, I kind of get this and I don't want to hang out here. Mm-hmm. This was I kind of don't get it, but I am going to stick around for a while longer. So there's something compelling about that, at least as you were saying, for people who like the interesting mess of I don't get this, but I want to hang. Right. All right. Another sponsor break and then Station Eleven. I mean, we've had the dinner wear out for a while, right? (laughs) We've had we've the the table's been set. Um, We've had to put the lasagna back in the fridge a couple times, but sometimes the lasagna gets better, Rebecca. In fact, I would argue... Don't eat the lasagna the first day. Chili and lasagna, save for day nine. We, we call Maybe that the glom nine. factor in yes, my house. Yes, right. Yeah. This is a different use of glom than we use internally yeah. here. Um, <laughs> yeah, the congealed, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it takes on a third property. Yeah, um, after chili's better the second day. It's just truth. So we were talking about this before the show, like how we're going to approach Station Eleven, and you said, if anything, it's climbed in your estimation now that we're done with it, and you've been singing it, for, whereas... We're, None of the books we're talking about in Frontless Corner, we're going to sing from the rooftops, I don't think. I think that's it. Maybe the Evison, but even that, you're like, eh, marginal yeah. value is not as high as it could be something else. Station Eleven is different in that yes. it's, like, it's like nothing else. There is no replacement value for Station Eleven. We continue to think about it. It continues to reverberate. Um, it had both moments of intense you know, transcendence, feeling, emotion, things you've never seen before, but also it sticks to your ribs. Right, mm-hmm. it's filling. That lasagna is going to last us a few days at this point. So is that yeah. where we are? Where are you yes. in your Station Eleven journey before we get into specifics? Yeah, I'm. That's where it. I am. It's yeah. the best ten hours I've spent on television in at least five years, if not longer. <laughs> it might be the best ten hours wanted, I've spent I, I, on television. I ever. was going to say, Michelle and I have been circling the where does it fit into our um, compromised best TV shows of all time. <laughs> Again, it, it it has strengths and weaknesses that are structural. It can't. You don't spend as much time with it, right? As you do, yeah. Breaking like the Bad, West which you like, or The West Wing, or Mad Men, which I have said I mm-hmm. think is my favorite. I'm not sure yeah. it's the best. So you don't get six seasons with Peggy. You don't. You get ten episodes, 
and Kirsten is in most of them, but even it's not the same Kirsten in both of them. So like you don't have that kind of a crude fondness, but on the other hand, when it shines, it shines fricking bright. So is it better to burn out or fade away? (laughs) Most of the shows that go on for a long time burn out to some degrees. This one doesn't. This one is a firework. It's incandescent for 10 episodes and it's out. And And there, there shall be more. And that is the way it should be. I heard Patrick Please Somerville on no Patrick Somerville was on The Watch with okay. Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald and they were like could you imagine doing mm. something else with this world and he was like yeah I mean m- maybe there's a story to tell about like what somebody else was doing in like year yeah. 8 cuz you know we spend time in like year 1 and year 20 mostly. Um but I don't think they're going down that path. I really hope they know how perfectly contained yeah. this piece of art is and please don't go back to the well (laughs) so you can go find out what the premise is we don't need to rehash the premise and everything like that i don't think that's value add for us i think what we can do is say what was it about it for us i think we share some of this stuff and we also don't share some of the stuff Mm -hmm. let me start with this and get it off the board because i have to do it English nerd stuff. I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah, I know you're going to like the Hamlet stuff a lot more than than I do. What a big year for Shakespeare. It's been like 500 years in a row of a big year for Shakespeare. (laughs) Um, As these things, we get a West Side Story. We get a Macbeth. uh, We get get this. So one of the things that's super cool, um, especially we've been doing Adaptation Nation over the last few months, is the, the... the story is about art, right? That's one of the central, if not, maybe you could argue the central concern alongside of being connected to other people. Like those are the two things. Not surprising if you've listened to us, those are things that we care about um, as good, you know, liberal arts students, liberal (laughs) arts plus students. The thing this is doing is it's, I think, virtuosic from a narrative point of view, looking at taking different texts of various levels of familiarity Mm -hmm. and spinning them out and seeing what they do in the world. The the titular Stitch 11 is a self-published comic that one of the characters in the story writes, and it gets in a couple of key characters' hands and becomes very important to them in different ways. Shakespeare is circling behind. Shakespeare is sort of the Station Eleven of the world, you might think about it. It's like these texts that get held onto and reinterpreted and adapted, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, sometimes for selfish reasons, sometimes for altruistic ones. But, you know, the, the, the slug line that one of the characters writes on one of their defunct vans that they pull around is taken from Star Trek, which says survival is insufficient, meaning just, you know, eating deer jerky and getting through the winter, as sometimes we think about a post-apocalyptic YA, or not YA, but all stories, YA or otherwise, that's surviving. Well, survival is not enough. Yeah. Um, and we see in variety of ways that people will hazard their survival to to read something else, whether it's art or love or connection, or progeny, or, you know, what else it might be. But just getting through isn't enough. And interestingly, the people, the bad guys, if there are such a thing, there's someone who's called the prophet, which for a while you think is a bad guy, and it doesn't turn out to be that simple. But the real bad, the faceless sort of inhuman bad guys are like survivalists, right? The Mm -hmm. red bandanas, someone that comes in and takes someone's apartment. They are they are prepper garb wearing survivalists, and they're dehumanized. This is the show is very much saying this is not what it means to be human. The most human moments are people reciting Hamlet to their mom, or or surrogate father, and like working their stuff out, and like crying with a knife, and saying that (laughs) showtime. And that's where the beauty is. And I think that 
is maybe what the the most interesting way of understanding what the post-apocalyptic thing is doing is yes. saying when you strip everything else out this still matters right mm-hmm. and i think those of us who love the show find ourselves nodding ahead and say yes, yes. When you get right down to it, this is the stuff that matters. Yeah, I think this is the stuff that makes it worth being alive. Mm -hmm. And it's what is, it's what elevates this above any of the other, the world has ended and there's a few people left kinds of stories. Like, um, I think I am on the record and you have teased me about it for like, if there's a zombie apocalypse, I'm just running off the nearest cliff. Like, Uh, I don't need to try to live as long as I can before the zombie eventually bites me. Like, I'm done. Um, Because that's like that survival is insufficient. (laughs) You know, like there needs to be... (laughs) It's necessary if you want to have a human experience, but it's not sufficient. Right. Like, that's not the life that I want to have is just running from one place to the next trying to not get bitten by a zombie. There needs to be something more. And if that's the end, I'm done. Um, And so this really resonated with me on that level of like, people have survived this thing. And when they are able to come back together and find new people and rebuild society, it's interesting what they take with them and what they don't try Mm. to rebuild. And like some of it is that you couldn't, you know, like a tenth of a percent of the population is left. You can't like rebuild the internet and remake cell phones, but they don't seem terribly, at least this group of people that we're following, we don't know what's happening elsewhere in the world. They don't seem terribly concerned with that. They wanted to find each other and make something beautiful and recreate the feeling of a family, but not just a nuclear family, really have a community um, and be able to call on each other and have these connections through art. Um, And I think it's very powerful that you don't need to know like Hamlet inside out. You know, I have like the passing familiarity that an English major should have with Hamlet. (laughs) Um, So I followed, but you know, I was watching with Bob, who isn't you know super into Shakespeare, and like you don't you don't need to know. They tell you everything you need, and that I mean that's the magic of Shakespeare. Also, that it right. tells you everything that you need. But that's what elevates it for me. The most powerful thing running through the whole series, or I guess the most affecting thing, was the use of music with the yeah. characters. That there are the score is incredible. There are some just truly genius needle drops of just surprising music in places um when tlc's creep comes on when jeevan is in the birthing center on that night i I figured that probably you (laughs) levitated that was when when tlc was their celebratory um, yeah we're all together now party that was beautiful somebody finds a karaoke machine and one of the people starts singing lisa loeb stay um there's i mean of course the moment that everybody talks about with the show is uh when naban rizwan jumps up at the dinner table spoilers spoilers yeah yeah, okay anyway but yeah we're spoilering but he's doing tribe called quest tribe called quest shows up several times in the show and i just want to shout out the genius of using a band whose name is tribe called quest Mm. in a show about this small group of people literally traveling around this itinerant shakespeare (laughs) troupe circling the great lakes together and then in the finale i mean i cried like for the last 20 minutes of the final episode and that's not something that happens to me with television much but from the end of the hamlet performance in the finale through then deborah cox singing midnight train to georgia like as part I of just, a wake essentially as part right? of a wake yeah. i was just, that just broke me i was just sobbing it rings these like really deep bells in like soul bells mm-hmm. <laughs> i think um, and there was such a 
just a, a, a really intelligent and thoughtful use of different kinds of art, like incorporating literature, incorporating music, and a real generosity. There's a really generous understanding of what humans are and a really generous lens on humans and community that made this feel hopeful and life affirming and like like there is an after yeah after the the big bad thing you don't just live in the big bad moment forever and that existence of the after i thought was really powerful and then like on the level of the art itself i love a piece of art that trusts its reader or its viewer mm-hmm. to come along with it and to not need to know everything and they weren't trying to be intentionally tricky either but there's a lot of moments where you don't quite know who you are or you don't or where where you are you don't quite know what the connections between people are yet or how a thing is going to shake out and they really i think just threaded that needle perfectly of like they gave us enough to follow and also trusted us enough to you know fill things in i felt like i was in such good hands mm. with those writers um and i would have been happy like they wrapped up a bunch of things at the end and I was so glad to see it. But I also felt like I would have been at peace if they had not even wrapped up that final big bow of, or we're spoiling, right? Of Jeevan and yeah. Kirsten <laughs> seeing each other again. Because I thought in that, in, there's that moment in the finale where like he's, she's walking by, but he's facing the wrong direction across yeah. a room. And I thought like, oh God, they're, they're going to be this close to each other and they're never going to know it. They're never going to see each other again. And I was like, that's, I'm okay with that. That would have been okay with me because they handled the show. So the rest of it so well, but I was really glad that they got to come back together. I, do I feel like wonder. I just rambled. That's like all no, no, my station fine. 11 feelings. I do <laughs> wonder because the, the show started production pre pandemic and then they picked up, mm. you know, clearly in pandemic cause we're still in it. I wonder if there were no COVID, if I, I guess the the, oh, the cool. momentum towards the hugs at the end yeah. would have been less urgent. Because I found myself wondering, like, the book itself ends on a hopeful note, but not quite as touchy-feely. And again, this is not a Lifetime movie. Like, it's it's you get more hugs than you would get out of a most apocalyptic. <laughs> it's the most uplifting post-apocalyptic movie you're probably ever, or yeah. TV it's show, still, series, property you're ever going to see. So it's emotionally having, challenging. Having said all that, but you kind of get all of the hugs you want from yeah. various characters yeah. at the end. And I could, I agree with you. I could also have had a little more salt at the end mm-hmm. or a little less sugar or however you want to put that. On the other hand, it's two years of covid and i could use the characters we've watched struggle get a moment of 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 hugging and things turning out as okay as we could reasonably expect frankly in these moments but Mm -hmm. it did get me thinking because i you know one of my other claims about this is i haven't read game of thrones so i'm taking that off the board um this might be the best pairing like you get the book and the adaptation that are both great but different enough that they each do something different than the other ones right yeah i can't because this one is it's hugely different than the book um have we talked about this did i tell you about this uh you told me you went back and read the book yeah that's all i know this is all spoilers so the central relationship in the series does not exist in the book yeah jeevan and kirsten have a passing encounter on day one and that's it. And we follow them and Jeevan ends up in a different place, even though I think some of the, the structural pieces, the thematic elements hold for him. But the thing that we largely carry through is this, I don't know, is he in his late 20s, early 30s, kind of a guy who, because of happenstance, happened to have this nine years old, 10? I can't remember how old she's supposed to be at the beginning. 
kid who in the middle of the society collapsing, he's, he's there and he's the proximal adult. Yeah. Um, and he does the hard, but I think expected of most humans, though many wouldn't thing of like looking out for her for a long time and sacrificing and putting her first, her well-being first. And they spend some time together and they get separated. And then they're, they're looking at each other, longing for each other, wanting to reconnect but then also learning how to be okay apart mm-hmm. is the sh- I think that's the the, yep. the emotional center of the show outside of artistic um, and you know some other kinds of concerns. I think a, a lot of the other performances and storylines are variations on that theme. Uh, to be honest with you, they don't do that. In in, in Emily St. John Mandel does not do that. the The book is much more of a polished gem. This is a bigger canvas. It's a much bigger canvas, and it's used to good effect. I think the. Th- in addition to being about things I care about and using works I care about, the other thing that really struck me is how almost anything could happen. It felt like almost anything could happen at any moment. Yes. Right? Yeah. That I really, I don't know the last time, even having read the book, after the episode one or two, I knew I was off script. And I wasn't even finding myself making good guesses Mm-mm. about what was going to, or even trying to really no. guess. And that kind of letting it play as it come, and most, most if not all of the choices felt both interesting, um, provocative, right, and surprising. I don't know how you do that. It's lightning yeah. in a ball. I, I don't. I don't think that's it's, something you learn in MFA school how to do that. They did some very particular kind of magic with it, yeah. and I, I had this the same experience where I wasn't even trying to guess. I didn't want to guess, like. I, it was just like, whatever is going to happen in the mm-hmm. next hour, I am here for. And in the final episode, there's a moment between Kirsten and Jeevan where he's like, I, I told you I'd walk you home. And she says, you walked you me did. home. Yeah. And it made me think about, um, we're all just walking each other home is a mm-hmm. popular quote from Ram Das, who was a Buddhist teacher. And like, that's the way he talked about life is we're all just walking each other home. We're all just in this and we're like, you know, trying to get to the end of it together. And he also happened to teach a lot about like, be here now that like very common Buddhist yeah. or mindful thing of like, all we have is the present. And there was something about the way that they put this story together where I, th- I felt as a viewer, like my only option was just to be in the present moment with whatever they were showing me at the time, like whatever those people were doing, whatever conversation they were having, where whichever like slice of the story and slice of time they were in was where I was. And I didn't want to be anywhere else. I didn't feel tempted to think about any other possible storylines or like guess or ask about what might happen. And I, I think you're right. There's no way to like, diagram that and teach somebody else yeah, how run it back to use do it, as a it. have fun <laughs> yeah no there's there's no way it's also impeccably cast like mm. just impeccably cast i didn't think anybody was out of place i thought it was really smart that nobody was a big major movie star that's like not distracting in that way Mackenzie davis is so excellent like i'm gonna carry a banner for himesh patel for the rest of my life he was what un- a- i mean him and miranda what? lawler yes baby kirsten matilda I mean, matilda, matilda lawler. lawler unbelievable yeah. frank like you could go 10 oh deep yeah and be like unbelievable, unbelievable unbelievable frank and yeah naban rizwan plays frank he's like 25 years old which That's is incredible sick. and makes me angry he was <laughs> He wildly was good so in two good. episodes yeah yeah just yeah. incredible memorable really singular performances from people who seemed to fully get it and mm-hmm. 
And as you were saying, the I, I remember loving the book when I read it. I do not remember much about it beyond that. And I remembered a lot of the stuff about the airport and the yep. Museum of Civilization yep. from the book and the, you know, that there was Shakespeare stuff. But I've read like hundreds of books since then. And it just 10 years, hundreds of books. It's yeah, a lot of I, miles on the. Yeah. And it just it faded. And they stand like complete. Each of them stands as a completely whole valuable thing for me and my art consuming life but I didn't feel like I needed to go back and compare um I think it's interesting to know that like so much of this of the tv show is generated almost from whole cloth or or the tv writers taking bits yeah. and pieces of the book and spinning up something completely new um but I've I've never seen that done where the ideas from the book birthed a, a compl- an adaptation that was not just about those ideas but about some different ideas and completely exploded the way the story is told and who's in it and how yeah, those I think, connections happen. It's like it, the whole thing is really singular. I think a lot of the themes are similar. A lot of the concerns are similar, done differently. Like the idea, the, the one that struck me is, you know, E.M. Forston's old very simple mantra with an exclamation point of just connect, like that's mm-hmm. the secret, just connect. I think both works are interested in what that means. In, yeah. in the book, there's a lot of time of people being... I don't know, kind of flung, far flung away from each other, surviving. And then as the book comes to a close, kind of turning toward, hum- turning toward others, turning toward living, not just surviving, turning towards art, turning towards community. I think you get a lot more of that turning toward earlier, right? You get those mm-hmm. connections and people, you know, even as something as simple as, and I don't remember the character's name now, but the the show is very good about playing with your stereotypes because we get this golfing business bro stereotype. <laughs> Uh, with Miranda Carroll. And once they turn toward each other, they both see each other differently. And every yeah. time someone turns toward each other, something good happens. And every time someone turns away from someone else, something bad happens. And I think it's as simple as that. It's as simple mm-hmm. and as beautiful and affirming and difficult yeah. in most that, of our lives as that. That golfing bro, that's Timothy Simons, who was also yeah. on Veep. And just a ah, like for, which I never for, saw. For a character who was in so little of the show, just also really memorable and mm-hmm. very funny. And surprising, too, because you yeah. think they're playing you like a fiddle. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. I see what this is. Mm-hmm. And then you turn around and he, you know, the, the the best moment, I think, for him is, you know, Miranda, who is seeing what's going on in the world and kind of shutting it down and trying to figure out how to survive. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go golf. I'm sure this will be nothing. <laughs> then you come and, then later, he, and you're like, okay, what an airhead. You come out to find out. He says, I just didn't know what else to do. I just thought that's I, what a person would do. I thought that's do. what a calm person would do. It's like, wow, you're playing the yeah. part that we it's... thought you were playing, but you're only playing it. Yeah, there was something about Miranda talking about how logistics is the path things take that they repeated a couple of times throughout. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's so much of what the story is about, too, that like nobody planned any of this. You couldn't plan it. And you also couldn't plan what it would look like after. And that is maybe part of what's like healing and affirming about watching mm-hmm. this show in this particular moment that has taken me like a month to process to be able to <laughs> to articulate it that we are in this time and we've been in this time for two years where all we really want is for it to be over none of it has been predictable and what it will look like afterward is also not predictable when there will be some meaningful shift or meaningful kind of after nobody knows in any reliable way and it was I think on a deep level that I had not realized it was helpful to see characters who had had that experience Mm. and like 
they're traveling. I don't know that I want to like live in a wagon and travel around the Great Lakes performing Shakespeare and not the having beards alone in suffering, <laughs> not having indoor plumbing. I'm a big fan of a hot shower, mm-hmm. but they got out of it. Like there is an after, and you just have to take the path that the things take to get there. And that yeah. sort of combination of those two ideas was really powerful. Um, I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time. I've circled around like maybe I'll go back and rewatch and, and, yeah, and pick sure. up threads. It's like the idea of picking up things in the early episodes that I, you know, I think there's probably bits dropped in those that would have more meaning having seen the whole thing. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it, it just needs to like live whole for what it was that first time. Yeah. You know, it'll be there. It'll wait for you. Yeah. It'll um, be there. Station 11. That's a that's a thumbs up. I'd say we were overwhelmed. For sure. We've never texted each other with so many exclamation points. Oh my god! And I did I did recommend it to people. I told my brothers. I'm like, you got to check this out. Give it a shot. And Mm -hmm. you know, most I've been recommending. I'm sure the people that were like, "What are the hell you're talking about?" They you know they they gently and um, generously did not um, throw it back (laughs) in my face. But a lot of like, wow, got to be ready. Mm -hmm. Let let her rip. Give yourself give it a chance. All right. So that's our regular bit. Uh, next coming up, uh, Glory. And uh, Rebecca, well, we already talked to you. I'll talk to you again live to tape later. Well, as promised, listeners, we are joined this week by Glory Edom of Well Read Black Girl, which was a book club and was an event and is now a podcast. And I think it also remains all of those other things that it that it started out as. Um, so we're really excited to speak with her and hear about what she has going on and to introduce you all if you have not encountered her work yet uh, to this really exciting new thing that's happening in the world of books and reading. So Glory, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. So I guess for our folks who maybe it's hard to imagine anybody who's living in the bookish internet that has not come across Well-Read Black Girl, but just in case, um, would you give our listeners just a little bit of background about how that all started and um, where you began? And then we'll jump into what's going on now. Yeah, for sure. So Well-Read Black Girl started off as a very small and intimate book club, and we had a newsletter and we had a presence online. But I promise you before it was all these amazing followers, it probably was like 10 people. <laughs> and, and, you know, we had very humble beginnings in Brooklyn. And now it's like grown into a global movement where we have book clubs nationwide at independent bookstores. We have an annual festival. And we're now moving into the space of podcasting, which I'm super, super just like, I don't know, I'm just still in awe that all of this has happened in (laughs) such a short period of time. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary. Mm. Um, And I also have uh, two books published that focus on. Yeah, I know, right? It's like, and another thing. (laughs) Um, So I have uh, books published that focus on Well-Read Black Girl and um, talking to like authors and looking at the literary canon. Um, So yeah, that's, that's like the whole universe. So what was the impetus for starting the club and how did you begin even just to get those first 10 people? Yeah. I mean, originally, um, my humble 
beginnings were really about just meeting people. I really wanted to make new friends in New York. I'm a DC native, but at the time I was living in New York. I was in Brooklyn. It was like a big bustling city and I didn't know that many people. And so um, I started this book club with the hope that I would make some new friends and we would connect over books. And um, around that time, the person, the partner I was with uh, made me a t-shirt for my (laughs) birthday that said, well-read black girl and uh it piques people's curiosity they'd be like oh where'd you get that shirt from and actually like what are you reading you know and i honestly like i was never a big phone person on the subway i was always like toting around some kind mm-hmm. of book um and so i was like yes people are talking to me so we can definitely you know have a conversation about like the bluest eye or gloria naylor or whatever i was like carrying at the time um And it started off really like slowly and organically. And my background is in marketing and branding. So Mm -hmm. like being on social media was just kind of like a fun way. I really think of like Instagram and Twitter and all these Mm -hmm. things as my own little vision board. So originally I just was like sharing pictures of like books and like my work salads. And um, (laughs) uh, like it really just started to take off where there was this curiosity and I started the book club and the newsletter around the same time. And uh, and again, I, I really swear to you, like the, even the newsletter was all like my friends and family for the mm-hmm. first year. And as people started to like talk and spread the word, it grew organically. And now it's like it has a whole like world of its own. Seriously, <laughs> it's really we've been, phenomenal. We've been following you for so long um, that I have we have like a ten thousand million questions. We'll probably ping yeah. pong back and forth, Glory, <laughs> and like some of it will be like super nerdy and like industry stuff, and some of it will be a little more like uh, you know if, if you're a, as we call a civilian in the world of books and reading, maybe it's more interesting there. But you're not you're you're not a civilian in the world of books and reading anymore. So you're looking at what. If I was reading, I read some of the old profiles. We've talked about various things you've done on the show in the past because we talk about what's new, cool, and we're talking mm-hmm. about the world of books and reading and what you've done. Like, like every kind of like landmark, we've like, oh, look what Glory's doing. Look what Glory's doing. And I'm so <laughs> one thing I'm interested in is like, you know, what's next, what you're doing now. But like, what were some of the key moments where mm-hmm. you knew you had a thing, and then that you decided to try another thing? So like, it, it sounds if I remember right, and correct me if there's wrong. The, in, in the profiles of you that are online, and Gloria has profiles online, she fancies, so you know you can go find them. I'll put some links in the show notes. So we have the origin story of the t-shirt. Like that's one. Like that's it's a, a beautiful anecdote. I'm sure you still have the t-shirt somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. And then there is the book club, you know, folding chairs at Brooklyn bookstores with 10 people. And then there's Instagram. And then after that, it feels like that's, once those few things were in place, things kind of swelled, right? So like, what were some of the flashpoints in your mind that you're like, oh my God, this is this is like a thing thing. What, were there things that stuck out? Yes. Okay. Without question, the book. Like the yeah. fact that I had the opportunity and the privilege to write a book and have the central theme of it to be like, when did you first see yourself in literature? Mm. Like it just blew my mind. When my editor reached out to me, shout out to Emily Hartley. Like she is just like an amazing friend and person and just editor. Like she reached out to me and I was like, wait, what? Like you, 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 like, you think I should write a book? Like I just want to be like talking about books and excited about them. I had no 
I had no kind of vision of writing something down. Mm. And, and, and now fast forward to 2022, I'm like working on a memoir. Like it just, I did not see that vision. And so when she was like reaching out and asking me like what my thoughts were and if I had ever considered something in my mind was like, wait, what? Like what is happening? <laughs> like yeah. it was really a turning point. And it made and that me book was really 2018. Be- Did the book come out in 2018? The first one? Do yeah, I it came out in 20. 20- yeah. The first book came out in 2018 and I had such a, just like I had to like reset and really think about the mission and the mm. goals of the organization in general. Like, yes, I want to create visibility and I want to amplify these incredible writers, but how is this like really like moving in my life and how is this aligned just with my overall like vision for who I want to be in the world? And I have to say, you know, as you know, like the big industry has a powerful way of just like moving and shaping the culture. You know, mm. they, the books that they choose, the things that they decide, are going to be the winners, the things that we're going to like download and go to bookstores and buy. Like they are deciding what the canon will be in a lot of ways. And with the Instagram and with all the opportunities that I've been, you know, afforded, it really is in my own way. Like I'm serving as a gatekeeper as well, you know, and not in the way that like I'm like like shutting things down. I'm trying to open them up. I'm trying to open them up as much as possible and make a difference in deciding like what stories are going to be amplified and what which ones are going to be like shared with millions of people. And I didn't have like I'm not a VP at a publishing house, but I have this powerful tool of Instagram which like it made a difference the things that I talked about, the things that I shared, people were reading and engaging. And that's the key component. It's like it's one thing to be a publisher of a house, but you're not necessarily talking to people. And I'm in their DMs. Like, we're going back and forth. Like, we're, we're like, actually having, like, really intimate conversations and talking about how these short stories, like, shape us, especially when we think about, like, the literary foremothers that I constantly pay tribute to because there is no way I would be able to do the work that I do today if it wasn't for their boldness and audacity and the lives that they live. So, you know, we have to, I have to give them credit. Like there's, there's no well-read black girl without me reading the bluest eye Mm -hmm. or reading why the cage bird sings. And in the last five years, I've been able to pinpoint incredible writers that I know that will be speaking to future generations, you know? So Nicole Dennis-Ben and Elizabeth Acevedo and Britt Bennett, they are creating a new canon. They're they're like, they're the ones that like future generations will turn to for inspiration and study their craft and their writing. So when I had my book and when I just started seeing the reaction and the engagement from everyone, that is when I like had to like take a step back and say, okay, my purpose, my mission is to really support and uplift and help give voice to and pass the mic to other people that may not have that opportunity. I want to be as resourceful as possible. That like moment of recognition that you've been sort of sucked into the machine, but you can change the machine and use Mm. it for your own desires and to serve your own mission. It sounds really powerful. Not to mention the fact that like people probably freak out when you show up in their DMs. (laughs) 
<laughs> like I am sure that somebody is texting their best friend right after that happens like oh my god glory dm'd me uh, and it's like that is the kind of contact that you don't get from you know a lot of people that you might follow online who talk about cultivating community but the the actually having of the community requires that like really direct contact i'm wondering if you would talk to us a little bit more about what that's been like moving from just sort of following the path as the next thing opened up, which I think Jeff and I can relate to from the early years of Book Riot as well. Like, here's a thing we could try. Let's try this thing into like really having to think more strategically about it. And it sounds like you've been really empowered by being able to, to think strategically and plan more about what you want to do. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, there was a time where not only was I DMing, but I would call people like we would talk on the phone. (laughs) And and this is like, this is definitely I am a child of like the 90s because I love to talk on the phone still. (laughs) I have a very active like group chat, but like I I still love talking (laughs) to people on the phone. And um, this also makes me like think of a story. So I'm going to go on a a little bit of a tangent. But recently, oh, okay, great. I like I was interviewing Ebiza Boy, who's an incredible best-selling yeah. author, mm-hmm. and she recently um, put out a new book. It's a like novel in verse about Octavia Butler, mm-hmm. and it's called Star Child. It's so beautiful, and they have a lot of intimate connections. Apparently, like they share the same birthday, and like um, Eb actually attended a workshop that Octavia Butler huh. um, hosted. It's like it's so wild and amazing, and she talks about calling up Octavia Butler and talking to her. <gasps> Like, isn't that crazy? Like she was like, yeah, like I like I she's like, yeah, I wanted to take her class and I found I think I think she used like a phone book, like what are Oh those? my gosh. <laughs> and she like called her up <laughs> to talk to her. And I I feel that same kind of like kinship. Like I'm like, listen, if Octavia Butler had time to like listen to a young EB's a boy who was like just beginning her career and excited and full of just like questions. I can answer a DM. I can talk to people. I can make myself accessible. And I think that like that giving of self and generosity is so mm. essential to really mm. cultivating the new generations of, of writers. Like you have to give time, you know, t- time is such a special commodity and we hold onto it tightly, but the giving of the time and the sharing of space and being present for people, that is what creates more opportunities in your life. And I feel like I have made a lot of eye contact and talked to a lot of people and it gives me like, you know, it like fills my cup, but I'm also, it's like this exchange, you know? So I really truly believe in that like exchange of ideas and being like present for people and not only sharing space online, like we have to be in community, like in real spaces, you know? Mm. So that that's why it was so essential for me to start the festival and to have the book club where we're like sitting next to each other and talking. Um, and I hope all that is like going to be able to be translated into my podcast where it's like a real, like you can hear someone's excitement in their voice. Yeah. Like you can hear their, mm-hmm. like their joy, their pain, like all those things like come alive when you're talking to someone. Um, and I don't think we will ever try to find a, a full I- imitation of that, even when, with the VR and everything, like on Glory, the internet. Glory, stop like, it. Come on. Not- <laughs> Don't bring that into the... We can't... That's, For us. Like, come on, Glory. We can't... I mean, you're. I, it, it makes so much sense to me that a podcast... I'm sure you've been pitched all kinds of things um, over you know the time in various places. You know, one thing you seem to be very intentional about over time is like 
thinking of yourself as a connector, as a conduit, you know, you're not the star of the show, you're connecting authors and readers and centering readers in a way that publishing, as you said, often doesn't. So a Mm -hmm. podcast makes a ton of sense, even though it feels like it's a one to many, it's so intimate, right? You feel like you're eavesdropping on people's conversations. And um, so you have have a couple episodes out already. So I listened to the one, was Minjin Lee first or was uh, Tarana Burke first? I I got it backwards in my mind. Which one was the first full episode? Tarana was first. Yeah. Tarana Tarana was was first first and then it was Min. Yep. Yeah. That's a hell of a starting lineup. It's a hell of a starting lineup. (laughs) But um, I listened to Minjin Lee because I had recently read Pachinko. I was like last on the train to this, you know, and I was, and, and then Rebecca didn't were like totally blown away. I think it's interesting to think about what you're going to do and what you're going to find to be interesting. Cause after you do feel you'll have a, you'll have a better sense of what's possible. I guess one thing that struck me too is now to start a pod in 2022, I guess it was end of 2021 when there was a, maybe you had the a wrap up of the event, but 2015 to 2020, 2022 in the world of publishing, in the world of diverse and marginalized voices, black literature, it's only seven years, but it, feels like a, a really different time, like and the work is not all done, but there is, Rebecca and I were talking about this, I think a couple of weeks ago, there are so many unbelievably exciting young writers now out there. Are you going to mix up like people we know, people we don't? Like, how are you going to, you going to pick and choose? You can get your Tarana Burks and your Minjin Lees, but there's also, you know, black people, non-binary people, marginalized people publishing all over the place. Like there's so many people to choose from, I guess. How how are you figuring this out? How there's only so much time in the day. How are you going to figure that out? I mean, it's so wild. I mean, the fact that you just mentioned the last couple of years, like so much has happened. I mean, I'm thinking about the reason I wanted to bring on Tarana is because her memoir Unbound is Mm -hmm. just so prolific. Like it is like, beyond everything that she writes about her becoming an activist and the Me Too movement. And so much has happened like between the political landscape, the Me Too movement, the just like the industry of just like more POC led films and artwork Mm -hmm. and books coming out, banned books happening. We, there is tons and tons of things to discuss. And I want there to be this like connection between what's happening in the real world, in pop culture, in art, uh, on the news, like everything that's happening and the books that we're reading that are shaping our thoughts and our mindsets and how we're moving in the world. Like I want those worlds to come together in a really powerful way. Like they're not going to be siloed. Like I just don't Mm want to talk about the book that someone published, you know, two days ago Mm -hmm. and we're trying to get it on the New York Times bestseller list. Like, yeah, (laughs) that's great. You know, like we can talk about that. And of course we'll encourage people to buy all of the books, you know, but mm-hmm. how are how are they being like picked up and how are, are how are students interacting with them? You know, mm-hmm. like well, how are they feeling? Like what is the new thing that everyone's talking about? Like I've uh I really absolutely love the all the identities that uh Britt Bennett showed us in the vanishing half Mm. and that's a perfect study of just like culture we're bringing history and contemporary ideas into play like the story starts in this small town that is dealing with extreme colorism and then you fast forward into present day and how those things like still affect the characters it's it's just brilliant you know and i think there are a lot of um authors that are playing with form and sentence structure and just like plot like i i really like authors that are daring to do something different and unconventional. Um, 
there's an author named Vanetta Blackburn that I I love her short stories. I'm a huge fan of, of that format. And she has a, a, a book out called How to Wrestle a Girl. And it's hmm. form like like when she's when you're reading her her work, it feels like she's telling you a story, you know, it's, and so, it, so for some people, it might be, feel a little uncomfortable or the, you know, the, how the stories, the order of it might feel like, oh, like, where is she taking me with this? But I live for that. Like, I love to be pulled into <laughs> oh, yeah. another world and be lost in it. And that is why I, I knew immediately I had to interview uh, Min Jin Lee. Like, not only is she just yeah. like a, like a wonderful person, but, ooh, the way, like, how she researches a pachinko is like, like, uh, like what? Yeah. Like you get, you are pulled into, I know, I knew nothing. I knew nothing, nothing. about nothing. that history. And I was like hooked, like page to turning, like highlighting things. And it taught me so much about just like a craft. Like she's a brilliant writer. And th- this idea of how one makes a home, you know, like mm. the, the characters are going from, uh, just different spaces where they have to like really contend with who they are in, in, in this environment and how they want to show up and what motherhood looks like. There are just so many brilliant themes. And also like she took 12 years to write that book, like 12 <laughs> whole years, you know, <laughs> like we don't talk enough about that. Like no. we, we're always like at the end when the book is out in the world and it's on the list and this, that, and the third, but writing a book, a really good book takes time. It's not like a, overnight Instagrammable thing. Like it takes so much time and devotion and discipline. And I want to get to the core of how you cultivate those practices. Um, and it's funny it's you me- should mention that. This is random yeah. trivia. Now I'm going to tangent since you did. It's okay for <laughs> me to tangent. Right? Hello and um, welcome. I don't know why I was on, I was looking up Dorothy, uh, Dorothy West and it took her 45 years to write the wedding. Uh, oh, wow. and, and some of it, she, you know, she was trying to make a living and after the Harlem Renaissance was really, really over, she went to Martha Vineyard to become a, a journalist. And so she was always working on it, but she was still alive in 1995 and published it when she was 82 years old. And, yep. you know, that's something Love that, that story. those, those kinds of places, especially black women of that, well, that long generation, uh, uh you know, yes. the 50s, 60s, 70s they weren't selling enough books to make a living. And I think that's one thing Rebecca and I've talked about recently too. Mm-hmm. You know, there are national book award winning authors, um, black women, black men, Asian women that have to work another job because they don't sell. They're not, we were looking at publishers weeklies, you know, best-selling books of the year and of the fiction, there was zero people of color. So even as yeah. there's books out there, there's more books available for people to buy. People still aren't picking them up writ large in the same way that we would have, you know, I don't love John Grisham. I don't love um, Daniel Steele, but boy, I would love there to be a black John Grisham um, or or a Muslim Daniel Steele where those people get the dollars and the marketing budgets and then they get careers out of them. Cause I mean, even Tony, right. She sold, but didn't sell as much as you would think. She was a random house editor while she was writing the first couple books. Yes. It's it's just you know it's one of those things and and you as you mentioned Dorothy was I I'm I'm just like a student of her work mm. and you know to think about the the people she was surrounded by oh, God. you know it's like she was like amongst like Langston Hughes and you know Zornial Hurston Claude McKay <laughs> like like and you know it's I would have loved had I known 
you know, at this time, obviously, like, well, red, black girl wasn't like a, a thing yet. But I mean, like, to still talk to her, to like hear her words in the 90s, like, that's just like, wow, like, we have so many more like living legends among us that we need to just like, oh, like, just be at their feet, you know, like, bless Sonia Sanchez, like, keep her safe, you know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's just well, like, it's interesting. Yeah, because I, you know, in some of the I was, you know, in reading the, the backstory of, of your own reading, you know, biography and the, the writers you grew up admiring and reading and being influenced by the generation is turning over right i mean we lost bell hooks this year Mm -hmm. you know alice walker is older there was you know and famously alice walker went you know and saw zora's grave and there's like a missing generation between zora and alice walker so there's and so we have this big gap between like you you call them foremothers and then like the current like the I don't know, the present tense, the young kids, you know, think Jasmine Ward, I guess, Colson Whitehead, whoever's the standard bearers right now. And then there's a whole parcel coming behind. And I don't know who's going to, you know, turn into careers and do other things or get lost, lost, go get them checks, writing TV or movies. That's fine. If that's what they want to do, people are doing that. But it's interesting to be at this moment too, because, you know, the, the Tony K. Bambars of the world, the Jamaican Kikades of the world, um, were so influential and still people don't know them, right? They don't know them like they knew the Philip Ross. They don't know them like they knew the Nabokovs or the, you know, the the Updikes. And I hope, I hope that will change over time. I think it was happening in school when I was still in school. I don't want to date myself too much, even though everyone knows exactly how old I am on this show because I talk about it literally every time. (laughs) Narcissist and afraid of getting older. But it is interesting to see that it's such a, such a fertile time, but so uncertain too about, what's the next phase going to look like? Um, what's it going to mean to even to talk about blackness? I mean, e- even in the phrase well-read black girl, each one of those terms means something different to you now than it probably did seven years ago, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I was I was really grappling with the term girl because mm-hmm. I would get questions like, why isn't it well-read black woman? You know, like, uh, like are you, is this a, like a, term of disrespect and I'm like no no not at all this is a term of endearment when I like talk to my best girlfriends I'm constantly like hey girl like <laughs> let's talk you know like it's just been it's a loving way of just like calling in your sister that and that's how I always looked at it but you know it wouldn't have the same effect if I was possibly doing like well-read black boy unless mm. it was like a child like it w- wouldn't be like you don't go around calling like grown black mm-hmm. man boy you know what yeah. I mean it's just like it's not the same thing so I have to always take in like the cultural nuance of certain words and study them and be mindful. I also recognize fully that even saying well-read black girl is a powerful political statement because there was a time in history where mm-hmm. black people were not allowed to read. It was like literally, it was illegal, you know, mm-hmm. if you could even fathom, like that sounds insane, but that is the truth. It was so many other insane parts of history that have happened, you know, like it's, it is a call to action. It is a political movement. It is a, a term of in, uh, affirmation and intention. It's all these things. And whoever is saying the words is what they're embodying. And I'm again, I'm just very mindful of how I move in this space. And I try to be very just protective of mm-hmm. um, the community. I don't want it to be co-opted or abused or manipulated. I want our audience to feel 
cared for. And I want the authors that I interact with to just feel my, um, my tenderness and my just like integrity around this organization. And that's why it's been, you know, sometimes it does take longer to do things. It took longer to, cause everyone was like, just hop in the closet, pull out a mic, do a podcast, <laughs> like, you know? And I just was like, uh, I don't think I can do that. Like I really need to like, you know, I want to do it right. And I want to do it with a team of people that I trust. Like I mm. want to do, I like, I really, I really do believe in the timing of my life and I am a very patient person. And so I'm just like, we're going to do it right. And I am grateful for the, like the, the, the windfall of everything that is well-read black girl, but I know I have so much more to learn and like so much far to further to go, you know, like I'm, I'm, I didn't necessarily like get an MFA in writing and I did you know, I didn't do all the conventional things to get into this space. And I, and I just am, I'm aware of, um, of what things could seem like or like, yeah, ideas, I know what you, mean. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? We're attuned you know? to that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was th- listening to you talk about that. It seems like the, it's not a coincidence that there's that level of intention and care and connection to the community that you're serving that makes this work in a way that attempts just to, you know, like market books to particular audiences often come across as exactly what they are, just attempts to market books to particular audiences. And that that's not what you're about. You're really trying to do something bigger and it's coming across because you're so deeply embedded in it. Um, which it's just so beautiful, Gloria. I hope that like you, oh, thank you. That, that you get to step back and have some moments of looking at this thing that you've created and like really taking in what a powerful community and what a powerful movement it is. And we want to be mindful of, of your time that you're joining us here today. So folks who are listening, who want to be part of this movement, folks who want to be a good ally to Well-Read Black Girl and support the work, where can they find you? What can they do? How can we plug in? Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity just to talk with you all. It's it's just like, it's amazing. I would love for folks to follow me on Instagram at wellreadblackgirl. You can also visit my website, which is at the same. It's wellreadblackgirl.com. And yeah, like slide into my DMs, follow me on Twitter. It's all under Butler. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. It's all under wellreadblackgirl. A Google search will will help. (laughs) I'll definitely (laughs) pop up. and, And I would definitely appreciate folks buying my books you know my last anthology came out in october it's called on girlhood 15 stories from the well-read black girl library so you know go to your indie bookstore pick it up you know i'll sign the team's in there tony's in there (laughs) yes Tony Morrison is in there, Rita Dove, mm. Alice Walker, and then we have them, you know, bookmarked with some incredible contemporary writers like Alexia Authors and Camille Acker. It is just Dorothy West is in there. It is like a beautiful reflection. Maybe of- that's why I was on the wiki page because I was looking at, I was trying to remember what was on the book and I was like, Dorothy West went, anyway, sorry. So yes, the rabbit hole yeah. comes full the circle. Rab- yeah, it's, it's the internet is forever. Uh, yes, it is. It is. And I am definitely like, a, like, I love the internet. Internet friends rock. <laughs> so, and you're, uh, she's going to have, uh, just by starting, you're going to have a great guest. I know there's a white whale out there for you because I read it in one of the interviews that you tried to get Michelle Obama to come on for Becoming and it didn't work mm-hmm. out. You're going to get her. It's going to happen. Oh, yeah. yes, she's still got please. three books left with crowns. So there's going to, there's going to be a time. It's going to happen. Glory, we're pulling for you. You yes, can do it. Yes, we are. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I would love that. Miss Obama, you know I love you. I love you. Get those Pushkin publicists on your side. Gladwell can pick up a phone. Come on. Oh my gosh, I 
I lo- they have given me so much already. Like, oh, President that's a, it's Obama. a great fit. It's a wonderful yes, fit. We think they're really super is. smart. We, love and them. we were just talking about a, another project we'll talk about on the show, but it's a great. I, I hope everything goes great. I, I think you're in good hands. I want the whole family. I, I'm like, I've told this story. I think oh, I've told this story, but we have, um, we have the, uh, on my mom's fridge, she has like an old calendar picture of them. And it's huge. Like, it takes up like the whole <laughs> freezer. So people, like, I'm sure like my son thinks like they're family members because they're oh, rocking it. <laughs> Michelle, when are they coming, Mom? What we need is for your mom to come on the podcast with you. Yeah, when you Michelle Obama comes on, it'll be the whole family. It'll we be invite Sasha, Malia, like yes. everyone. It'll, mm. Yes, we're manifesting it today. Little red, black girls. There you go. Yeah. Offline, you have to tell us if you know. One of Rebecca and I's big questions is how you know Obama always puts out uh, Barack. That is, I don't think Michelle does this. His list no. of the books he read this summer. We mm. couldn't be more fascinated about how these like what who is curating? How, is he? He's just not walking into politics and prose and picking up. He stuff. might be. Come Honestly, on, Glory, that's not he right. He might be. I would not be surprised. There is um, there's like a used um bookstore out here in DC called I think it's called like Second Story. Okay. And mm. um, one time I went in there and there was like a signed like photo on the wall and I was like, you know what? I would not be surprised if uh, President Obama was in here like buying books because it was like mm. it's like a rare little shop in Dupont Circle. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, like I, you know what? Like I don't put anything past Obamas. They I are because they're it's they're true. such in the culture. They're like they're listening to Beyonce. They're like they're in it. They you are. know, they they're, really like, are. They I, spent their twenties organizing. They're like we're listening to records and reading books and mm-hmm. drinking stuff now. We got to We got to exactly. They you know and still impacting policy. They're just like That's we're doing right. it all. <laughs> I mean Michelle Obama, the Obama. So the whole Obama, the the family you want. I mean the other inter- I mean the other white whales. You know. You'd want the Oprahs if you could get them, but you can beyond that. I think you probably get almost any one you want. I'm sure publishing is oh, going to be pretty oh, open yes. to who you want to give. You're so, so kind. I, I cannot I, imagine what your like inbox must look like with people banging down the door yeah. to get on the oh show. Oh my gosh, you guys, you guys are so sweet. I swear. Like, I need to record this and like. Oh, we are recording this. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put this in my pocket for later when I'm having like a bad day. I'm like, let me replay this. Yeah. You've got <laughs> to it, encourage me. Well, I'm. Gonna be listening, you know. Yes. I, I go to podcasts. I'll pick. I'll pick and choose. But um, good luck, Glory. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the you. time. We're, we're cheering for you. From yes, the thanks. internet sidelines. Thanks so oh, much for joining us, Glory, and all the best of luck. We look forward to having you on after you have the Obamas, so you can tell us all about it. <laughs> yes, we don't have to record that. We can keep <laughs> no. that on the DL. We get you behind the scenes. That's trust right. me, yeah, just for us. Um, That's a podcast for three. All right, thanks so much. All right, thanks, Glory. Thank you.